0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In addition to those things, it is part of that sermon series, or however you might term it, that Luke is putting together of Jesus' teachings. We don't know for sure if all these things are actually happening in chronological order. Some people think they do, some people think they don't. The point is is that Luke has ordered them in a specific way to be valuable together. And so as we go through the Lord's Prayer today, I want to challenge you. For those of you that come from a background where maybe the Lord's Prayer is not as much a positive thing as much of a negative thing. Um, if you come from a church background where maybe you were required to memorize it and recite it without actually engaging it, or you've been reciting it your whole life and it's lost meaning, I want to challenge you today. Because I come from that particular background. Now, my church, my parents, my my dad's a pastor, it was never forcefed fed to me. I did not have to recite it. But because it was so much part of my church culture growing up that it has lost meaning for me. I have i have imposed my baggage my sin on top of this passage and because of that i've spent the last several years of my life dreading every time the lord's prayer would come up and we had to recite it because it just didn't carry meaning for me anymore and i thought it was just empty liturgy what's important to know about the lord's prayer is that it is truth it is ordered truth god gave it to us jesus spoke it to his disciples when they asked him, how should we pray? And Jesus told them, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. When Jesus spoke this prayer to his disciples, the first important thing to understand about this is this was not something given to them to pray personally or individually. This does have application personally and individually, but it is given as a corporate prayer. All of the the text, all of the language used in this particular passage is very corporate. It's we, it's us. It was given to them to use in a corporate setting. For those of you that have just said your whole lives like I do, well, if I'm going to do the Lord's Prayer, I'm just going to do it myself inside of me because that's, probably, that's how my relationship with God works. That's not actually why this prayer was given. This prayer was given because we, Jesus wanted to give a unified template for prayer that could be spoken in unity together as a body. It was very intentionally given that way. So for me, that was my first conviction. was First off, that you've ruined this by making it all about you. This is about us. This is about our relationship with Jesus Christ. Our relationship, the church's relationship with God. So as I was reading through this, I tried really hard to, to put it in the context of what it would mean to, to say this in a corporate setting. If, if all of us know this prayer to the extent that it has no more meaning for us anymore, or maybe some of you don't come from that background, in which case I hope to challenge you in some of the meaning, then we as a community should be holding each other accountable to seeking the meaning of this prayer. It is purposeful to the church. It is purposeful to us as Christians. So in answering the question... That Tim posed to me before he left to Gallus, and he said, Nate, I want you to preach on the Lord's Prayer, and I want you to answer the question, how do we build God's kingdom? And I said, well, that's an interesting scripture. Uh, He said, I think you'll find it very interesting if you go read it in the context of the previous two passages. So I went and read it in the context of the previous two passages, and things started to come out at me. In 2 Timothy lies where my first conviction lay. All scripture is God breathed and useful. All of it. Every piece. Nothing has been left out. Everything necessary has been included. The Lord's Prayer is a key piece of theology, it is valuable. And we as a church must see it as valuable. We as individuals must see it as valuable. But its full value is in the context that God gave it as a corporate prayer. So what does it mean? What does the prayer mean? What is the purpose of the prayer? Line by line... What are we saying to God? What are we praying to Him? What is the covenant relationship that we are engaging in when we pray this prayer? The very, very first piece, Father. Father. Now, I, as many things, came at this from the wrong perspective. Even just this one little piece, the very, very first word, I got it wrong. Because I thought this was my justification for personally praying this prayer and never praying it in a corporate setting. Because this is the relationship between me and my Father, so therefore it is a personal thing. It is intimate. And I realized in that, that I was degrading the wholeness of God. That God is not just an intimate being. In fact, He is so much more than that. The intimacy that we find in God is not the full capacity of His love. The relationship that we have with God as our father encompasses his capacity. Well, maybe it doesn't. It describes, it defines better his capacity. Our relationship with a father is not purely emotional. As I started thinking through this, I was thinking through how is my son's relationship with me? Is it purely emotional? Is it something purely intimate? Or is there other purpose to it? And so as I went through and I meditated just on this one single word and I thought through my relationships with my family, I realized that by assuming that this is only an intimate relationship with my father does not take into accountability his authority, his provision, his counsel, his grace. For me to make it all about an intimate relationship with me and not a corporate relationship made it so that God was just simply a good friend, but not an authority in my life, not an accountability in my life. So that first word, Father, that is us as a church, saying, Father, Father of our community, we together engage you as a Father. Not as a friend, not as a peer, but as our authority, And that is an important piece in this. So before we even get started, I want to make sure that we address God with the proper title. Father. Not in the fatherly term that you might have from baggage from your life, or that I might have from baggage from my life, from our humanly fathers that fail us. But Father, as defined by the creator of this universe. The being the created family. That's the father that we are addressing in this. May your name be made holy, or hallowed, be your name. What does that mean? I always took that to mean let's glorify you, which which sounds great. I can do that in my own personal time. We can even maybe do that corporately. Let's just sing a little bit louder, and that glorifies God. But in this particular context, it actually means a whole lot more than that. To make something to to wish something holy or to make something holy is to sanctify it. To worship it with your inner being. And to mimic it. If you are truly going to glorify God's name, then living by the example of Jesus Christ is the way to do that. May your name be made holy. That we as a church will make your name holy because of our living actions in light of Jesus Christ's life. That's how we make Him holy. What an amazing thing to be part of, that we could actually bless God. That we could actually make Him holy. Now, could God make Himself holy apart from us? Yes, and He absolutely does. But does He invite us into that relationship to include Him? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's important that not only are we desiring to mimic Christ's life, but that we would long for Jesus to return. It's one thing, it's only part of the equation, for us to just live a life of moral standards set by Jesus and a life in relationship with Christ. It's another thing to wish in our heart for His return. Do you wish in your heart for His return? The big question that society always asks you is, do you fear death? Do you fear what death brings you? Most of us that are hopefully aspiring to be Christians that believe in heaven and believe in a Savior and believe that Christ has sanctified us by His sacrifice would love to say that no, we don't fear death. But deep down inside... Do you fear death? Do you truly fear death? Or is it something that you've just said, you know what, God, my life is yours, take me when you will, just don't make it too painful? Wait. Are you saying that out of fear? Now, Jesus, Jesus struggled, believe it or not. He struggled perfectly, but he did struggle. He asked His Father take the cup from Him. He asked that, he would not be, that, that that He would not have to die on the cross. He did not want to do that action, but He did want to glorify His Father. Jesus, like any human, was fearful of the human pain. But He was not fearful of what would come afterwards. And he had a God big enough, a relationship big enough that he dealt with that in a perfect way. So how do we long for his return? How do we long for, King, for Christ's kingdom to return? How do we as a church act in that? One of the important things I think that there is in this is that Christ is saying to his disciples, the church should hallow my name and wish for my return do we as a church come to do we as a church come together to wish for Christ's return or do we come together because we've had a tough week do we come together because we simply just want other brothers and sisters to commiserate with us because we like the worship because we like the music because we like good Sunday school programs Or are we coming to church to worship together, to praise together, to keep each other accountable to the way that we live our lives so that we corporately can look forward to the return of Christ? We as a body should be looking forward to the return of Christ. We should be holding each other up in that. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, there's a lot of very interesting arguments. You know what the number one argument is that I found on this and all the commentaries that I read? Well, we don't know if God is asking us for our daily bread today or tomorrow. And there are books written on this. And it just seems to me like maybe we've lost it. It doesn't matter. The value in the Scripture is that we are asking God for our daily bread, our very physical needs, our sustenance, the thing that keeps us ticking. That we are dependent on Him. Today or tomorrow means nothing. What's important is that we are glorifying God by pursuing Him and asking Him to meet our needs. By asking Him to meet our needs, we are are giving Him authority in our lives we are acknowledging that we must have him when our kids come to us and they ask for anything they would never be so humble to say this but really what they should be saying is dad mom i have nothing i am humble i am at your very whim you can do with me what you want i have no money can you please provide for me because i am nothing without you that is what we're saying to God in this. We are nothing without Him. Now, of course, God sees value in all life, both adults and kids. But this is what our relationship with God is not identical to our relationship with our kids because we are sinful human beings. What we are saying in this context is God, I have nothing. I do not have the bread, the rice, whatever the staple of your country is. I have nothing without you. We, corporately, the church, have nothing without You. We have no electricity without You. We have no instruments. We have no communion. We have no faith. We have no possessions. We have no ministry. We have no value apart from Him. He gives us value. That is what this is saying. It's not simply, please, God, provide me with that Camaro. Provide me with that Porsche. More support. God's saying, no, 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 no. I gave you that first dollar of your support. That very first one. And you would not be doing anything if it was not within His plan. After that, if we're not quite humble enough... We acknowledge our sins. May God forgive us our sins. What's really, really interesting is to to actually ask this as a corporate body, right? Because, once again, I was taught that everything that I did in my life between me and God that had anything to do with sin was a very personal thing. Which it is. Don't don't get me wrong. It, It is very, very personal. But we as a church are commanded that God would for, to ask for God's forgiveness of our sins. It's actually not real clear in the language here whether he's talking about we corporately want Him to forgive our personal sins or whether we corporately are actually asking for Him to forgive our corporate sins. That we as a church actually sin. We are a body of sinners. We are an organization established by Christ in perfection that we took out of perfection And we as an organization are great at sinning. We're great at messing up our priorities. We're great at worshiping for our own means and ends. We as a body should be coming before our Creator and asking for corporate forgiveness. Once again, this absolutely does have application in your personal lives. And I think everybody can see that. What I forgot was is that we are a body of believers mandated by Christ Himself to ask for corporate forgiveness. Do we as a church do that? Do we participate in that? It was an interesting experience coming up here this morning with no power? None? I'm I'm a bit of a problem solver myself. I I like to be a problem solver. I'm an administrator. Um, The power outage today did not fit on a spreadsheet, so I did not plan for it. And so for me to come up into a context like this, where God has clearly taken everything away, one of the very first things that I found myself thinking as I'm walking through the parking lot, trying to figure out if everybody's power out or it's just our power, if our power is just down, and I found myself thinking, Man, I'm going to have to come up with a plan for this. There's so many people just waiting. Where's Tim when you need him? And as I'm walking back out of the parking lot, God's saying in my heart, Nope, I'm going to put together a plan. I was still actually arguing with him at that point in time. Got in here, argued a little bit more. But by the time we got to the point of worship and I realized that it just doesn't matter, And I realized how much sin was in my heart this very morning. Just coming to be before you. I'm convicted. Because we as a church, me as an individual, we sin. We sin in worship. Wow. In this prayer, we are instructed to ask for corporate forgiveness. That God would be glorified because He forgives us. We acknowledge that we are sinful. Here's the interesting part. Please forgive our sins as we forgive others who sin against us. I got to this point in time and I was pretty miserable yesterday. At that point in time, it was probably... 4 p.m. ish yesterday and I was just finally I was really getting the notes together. I'd been really meditating on this for a while But I was really trying to put this into something I could actually speak to And kara came into my office because she was collecting the kids to leave and I was sitting there going "Ah, I don't know what i'm gonna do with this This is What it says literally is Please forgive us our sins in the same way, to the same magnitude, to the same extent that we will forgive others' sins. To what extent did Christ forgive your sins? In Psalms 103 it says, For His unfailing love towards those who fear Him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far, from the, as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to His children. Tender and compassionate to those who fear Him. In Isaiah 43, it says, Yes, I alone, I will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never, never think of them again. Romans 5, when we were utterly helpless... Christ came at just the right time and died for us as sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright would would be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God has restored by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. As an admitted problem solver, I love to jump to forgiveness simply just because it makes the problem go away. This bothers my wife a lot. For me, if I can end a fight or an argument by just apologizing, I'll do that. (laughs) I'm more than happy to do that. But does that solve the problem? Does that fix it? Because one of the things that I realized is that in our forgiveness, our forgiveness is demonstrated by our actions. We can say forgiveness all we want. Christ's forgiveness was demonstrated by his actions. If Christ would have just come to earth and said, you're all forgiven. I'm just going to go live a normal life now. What would you have gotten from that? Would you have had the security of His sacrifice on the cross? No. He just said, you're forgiven. Chances are good we would not all be here today. But Christ knew the value of acting out His forgiveness through action, through intent and purpose. Do we as a church, do we as individuals, do we act our forgiveness? Are we willing... To give our son to die for forgiveness. Have we removed those sins against us as far as the East is from the West? Have we truly forgotten the sins of people against us? Now, what's interesting is that a lot of us would say, well, it's very circumstantial, right? This whole forgiveness thing. And so we say really interesting excuses like... Okay, I'll forgive them, but I'm never going to trust them again. I'll forgive them, but I'll never be able to talk openly with them again or invest in them as a person. What they did was unforgivable. Godly people don't do that. Or, I'm not ready to forgive them yet. I just need more time. In any one of those statements, for you to apply that to your relationship with Christ... If Christ just came to you and said, "Mm, not really ready to forgive you yet, let me just have a little bit more time. Or, sure, I'll forgive you, but I will never trust you again. Sure, I will forgive you, but I will never invest in a relationship with you again. It's crazy, right? In this passage, we are saying that we will forgive others in the same capacity that Christ has forgiven us. Christ does trust us, even though daily we disappoint him. This is something that I've found to be a great struggle of mine in the church, in the church corporate, in the church world, in ministry. Man, if somebody messes up, done. We never trust him again. Now, slight little footnote here. Once somebody does mess up, Jesus never puts them back in a place of temptation to make that same mistake again knowingly. He never purposefully puts them there again. So in the case, for instance, of somebody stealing a bunch of money from you, I wouldn't then go and make them your investment counsel because that's a temptation. It's not that you don't trust them. It's that you do not want them to stumble. You do not want them to to be tempted. You want to take them from that place of temptation and put them in a place where they can be Part of God's great glory. We are absolutely called to trust each other no matter our sins against each other. Anything that says otherwise is something created of this world. Anything that says that people need to pay for their sins over and over and over again is something of this world. It is not something that Christ created. We are to trust. We are to value. As I'm looking back through my life, all of the people that I don't have such great relationships with anymore because of all the hurts, I'm convicted by that. We are called to forgive them in the same way that God forgave you, the same way He forgave me, the same way He forgave us. That we as a church should always be seeking reconciliation. Purposeful reconciliation now there is a place for discipline and God disciplines and that we should be a community of righteous and just discipline as well, but not apart from the grace of restoration. Because one is pure legalism. And the other one, you might as well go be a Unitarian. They must be in balance. We are called to forgive and to be just In your life, what hurts are you still holding on to? It was pretty clear in the parable of the unforgetting debtor what happens. Remember, this was a parable from Christ. If we do not forgive those debts to us in the same way that He's forgiven us, then we don't truly know our God. We don't truly know the salvation we've been given. Because if we truly knew the salvation we've been given, then what do you have to lose? If you forgive somebody and they hurt you again, but you know your value in Christ, so what? If you forgive somebody ten times and they continue to hurt you over and over again, but your value is defined by your relationship with Christ, what do you have to lose? Worst case scenario, you're going to keep forgiving them and eventually they're going to get a message and see Christ in you. We must forgive and forgive and forgive and forget. For those of you that are married, you know one real good way to get an argument very, very quick is to bring up a past history of things that your spouse has done to you, Right? Oh, remember that one time? No, no, this is okay for me to do because remember all those ten times you did that to me? Guaranteed going to be a difficult night. When in reality we are called to forget that we will just give it up. That we will lay ourselves before that person again in humility and we will invest in them. That is what we are called to do. I don't know about you, but I feel like this is probably going to take up the next probably 70 or 80 years of my life until I die before I really feel like I've got any handle on this. Because it hurts, right? It does hurt. But that's because that hurt is my pride saying I was wounded. That's my pride saying that person didn't respect me. That's my pride saying I'm more valuable than that. When really... It should be Christ saying you are valuable and it doesn't matter what those people think or do or say. And that's enough. Have you not just forgiven, but have you forgotten? Lastly, we need spiritual protection. We cannot absolutely cannot build God's kingdom without His protection. Because when we decide that we are going to be involved in building God's kingdom, we are entering into a world of another dimension that we are not capable of handling ourselves. If you decide that you are going to be involved in ministry of any kind, with your friends, your family, in your ministry here, your ministry as a church then you are vulnerable because Satan will want to tear you down. We must rely on God to protect us. Absolutely. There's no way around this. John 15.5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you? You will bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing. That's it. Done. Go home. Save yourself and a lot of other people a lot of money and time and hardship and heartache. If you are not involved, involved, invested in your relationship with Christ, you can accomplish nothing. That's it. Simple. What's amazing is that we know that God can restore us. That is His joy to restore us. It is His purpose to restore us. Because He loves us. And that is where we find our value. We must be invested in our relationship with Him. Because you know what? He's already invested in His relationship with you. We as a church need to do this better. We as a church need to show this better. We as a church need to stop talking ministry and start doing ministry. Christ never spoke apart from doing. There was always an action. There was always something that he was doing. Something that he could tie directly to that he had physically done we do not earn our salvation through actions, but we certainly should be responding to our salvation through actions. We must be protected spiritually, and there is only one solution for that. It's interesting. The the temp, the, the, the version of this that I'm reading uses the word yield. A lot of them say, uh, do not lead us into temptation, do not let us fall into temptation, but I personally picked this one because I like the word yield and the translation is a little bit rough when you start getting to saying, you know, please do not lead us into temptation because that has modern day cultural meaning to it. That would mean that God is in somehow way leading you into that temptation. But we know that's not true in a better translation, um, either yield or succumb to translate to to temptation is the, the words that I prefer. We are going to be tempted. Absolutely. Not because God led us there, but because we got ourselves there. Because we are sinful. Because we as a body, as a community, are sinful. Please do not let us as a church succumb or yield to temptation. That we would fight against it. So, how do we build God's kingdom? I think it's all right there. And I think the important piece that we see in this particular prayer is that we do it together. We do it corporately. We do it in corporate worship, in corporate ministry, in corporate accountability, in corporate prayer. That's how we build God's kingdom. We were never designed to be alone. We were never designed to be apart from the church. There's never a demonstration of ministry in Scripture that is apart from the church after the church had been created. And there's certainly not anything that has been defined by ministry that is apart from Christ. So, how do we build God's kingdom? We do it together. In the Good Samaritan, we learned we do it humbly, with purpose. We listen to the needs. We do not just assert ourselves on others. That we know we are less than that person that we are helping. And we serve them. In Martha and Mary, we see that the way that we build God's kingdom is by sitting at His feet and listening. And, and just soaking Him in. Serving is something we do in response after we've already had that experience. There's different times for serving. We are to first and foremost soak Him in. Then we come to the Lord's Prayer, and how do we do it? We do it corporately together by proclaiming Him, by making His name holy, by engaging in a relationship with Him as Father, by asking Him to meet our daily sustenance needs, by forgiving others. And by receiving His forgiveness. And by not yielding to temptation. Right there is your magical equation that you're looking for in order to build God's kingdom. That's that's what Christ gave us. In the next pa- passage that Tim will continue on next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the persistence of prayer and how often you should pray. But the value of today is that prayer... Can be and should be a corporate experience. So, why? As I was thinking through this, what about praying corporately together glorifies God? And I really had to struggle to come up with this list because I, I still struggle with it. I, I know it as truth, but in a lot of ways, I still feel like in my life it's still young. It's still a bit immature. But as I look out on this body, I know that we glorify God, that we build His kingdom together by corporate prayer, by engaging Him together because we are unified. That unity is part of God's character. And that when we come before Him unified, we glorify Him. We also come to Him humbled. When you come to Him personally, It's between you and Him. And it's very, very easy for it to just stay you rather than Him. In a corporate setting, there's a third dimension. It's you and Him and it's others. It's us and Him. By participating in a corporate prayer or corporate worship of any kind, you are saying that we combined are of value. And that I am part of something bigger and that the world does not revolve around me that I am part of the bigger picture. It also brings us into accountability with each other. If we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together and we're going to call God Father, then we as a church should hold each other accountable to doing that. If we are going to hallow His name, let's do it. If we're going to forgive others, let's do it. Let's keep each other accountable. That is the purpose purpose of being in a corporate worship setting. Christianity was never designed to work apart from a corporate worship setting. It just wasn't. We were called to be together in unity and relationship with others. So as a church, I I would challenge you, just as I've been challenged, To look into this scripture. To recite it. To pray it. With your family, with your church, with your small group, with your ministry. It has value. If you find yourself not participating because of baggage or past history, or because you don't see value in the prayer, that is not of God. He gave it to us to use corporately. And anything apart from wholly going into that with a humble spirit and participating corporately is a sinful relationship with Christ. We need to deal with those things. I need to deal with those things. I need to reconcile and restore Scripture to be valuable in my life. Because Christ did not ruin it. I ruined it. I devalued it. I misunderstood it. I misinterpreted it. Or others misplaced it on me. Or misinterpreted it. Or forced me. None of that is of God. The only thing that matters when we are praying and worshiping together is our relationship with Christ. Between us as a body and Him as our Creator. As we worship today, we're going to give you a chance to participate a bit in that. To be part of the corporate body. To pray, to worship together. And I want you to participate. And if it feels awkward, I want you to participate anyway. Because that awkwardness does not come from God's Holy Spirit. That awkwardness comes from our lives and our past. And so I want you to participate. I want to encourage you to deal with that